And now, an email from a listener sort of like you. Or, if you are Ken, an email from a listener exactly like you. But not exactly you, because this was written a few weeks ago, and you've had a few weeks' worth of experience since then, so you're no longer exactly the same person who wrote this email. But here it is nevertheless. Let's get this podcast started. Hi, Glenn. I really enjoyed your conversations with Britt Hartley on no-nonsense spirituality. I've been searching for a secular approach to spirituality, so this hit home. A few ideas came up that I'd love to hear your follow-up thoughts on. One, most religions aren't like other religions because they assert divine authority. Doesn't this introduce a more critical element of undue influence that amplifies the harm religion can generate? Two, Britt talked about saving the baby and throwing out the bathwater in the context of trying to identify and preserve the good in religion while discarding religion in general. I mostly agree with this. Many of the evidences believing Mormons claim are, in my view, normal positive responses claimed to be from God. Example, we feel good when we help others. But what amount of religious experience cannot be separated from religious belief? Do we need to have strong religious belief to trigger some of the most powerful religious experiences? Are there alternative ways to trigger elevation emotion? And three, relating this to your food analogy, can we recreate the sensation of eating a perfectly seared filet without actually eating a perfectly seared filet? I really appreciate the work you're doing, even if we don't connect on all topics. Hope you continue to find satisfaction in the work you're doing. Regards, Ken. This is Infants on Thrones. Baby steps. Who wants someone to preach to? The philosophies of men. I like magical toys. Who wants religion to? Mingled with humor. I don't believe in them. There will be many willing to preach to you the philosophies of men mingled with humor. We are evolving. Baby steps. You can buy anything in this world of money. the good in everything look for the people who will set your soul free it always seems impossible until it's done look for the good in everyone all right welcome back to infants on thrones i'm glenn ostland and this is episode 831 no-Nonsense Spirituality, Part 3 of Babies and Bathwater. And today you're going to hear an email from a listener named Ken. And you're going to hear my response to that listener named Ken. The response's name is Harvey, but I never call her that because that would be ridiculous. And ridiculousness has no place on an Infants on Thrones episode or something like that. So anyway, hold on to your All right. Thank you, Ken. Thank you for your response. Thank you for sharing your ideas. Thank you for asking me these questions. And thank you for being interested in hearing my thoughts. This is going to take a while, so please be patient with me as I set this up. 
I don't want to just blurt out my responses. I want to thoughtfully show you my work. I want to show you the dots that I'm seeing, which may or may not be the dots that you're seeing. And I want to show you the ways that I connect the dots that I'm seeing, which may or may not be the ways that you connect the dots that you're seeing. I don't want to imply that the way that I connect the dots is more or less correct than yours. It's just how I see it, taking my biases and my blind spots into consideration. So what I hope to do here is to show you my perfectly imperfect, ever-evolving snapshot of meaning in response to you showing me your perfectly imperfect, ever-evolving snapshot of meaning, and we can compare notes and see what any of that does for us. Sound like a deal? All right, Ken, so first, let me go ahead and just blurt out my answers to your questions, and then I'll go back and show you why I feel the way I do about this. Question number one. You said, most religions aren't like other organizations because they assert divine authority. Doesn't this introduce a more critical element of undue influence that amplifies the harm religion can generate? My quick answer to that, no. I don't think that harm that stems from claims of divine authority warrant any more concern than harm that stems from claims that come from non-divine authority. And as a matter of fact, I think that there's far more harm that's done in this world from non-divine authority sources than the other way around. And I'll explain more about why I see it that way shortly. Your question number two, Britt talked about saving the baby and throwing away the bathwater in the context of trying to identify and preserve the good in religion while discarding religion in general. I mostly agree with this. Many of the evidences believing Mormons claim are, in my view, normal positive responses claimed to be from God, like when we feel good when we help others. But what amount of religious experience cannot be separated from religious belief? Do we need to have a strong religious belief to trigger some of the most powerful religious experiences? Are there alternative ways to trigger elevation emotion? And here's my quick answer to that, Ken. Um, first, I, this is a really tricky question for me to answer, and it's going to take some time for me to attempt it. But basically, I don't know how to determine a religious belief from a non-religious belief. And furthermore, I don't really know why that distinction should matter. For example, a belief that tells me that it's okay to dehumanize another human being is problematic to me, whether that belief came from a religious tradition or from a non-religious tradition. And as far as elevation emotion goes, I think that elevation emotion feeling is always triggered by things that are important to us or that are validating to us on a subconscious level. It doesn't really matter if we call it a religious trigger or a non-religious trigger. If we feel validated or inspired or however you interpret elevation emotion when you're feeling it, when that's happening, you're bathing your cells in happy juice. And that's a valuable way to spend your time, a way of showing love to yourself and I'll spend more time unpacking this one shortly. And then your third question, Ken, relating this to your food analogy, can we recreate the sensation of eating a perfectly seared filet without actually eating a filet? And my answer, uh, yes and no, maybe you could, but it would be a different experience. And why would you need to do that if there's really nothing wrong with actually eating an actually perfectly seared filet? So those are my short answers, Ken. Now let me show you why I feel the way I do about these things. And I first want to start with a metaphor that you may have heard me talk about in last episode's essay, The Birth of the Divine Atheist, where I talked about a 10-page flip chart showing a monkey holding an ice cream cone. Now if you haven't heard that already, then let me paint a picture for you, or maybe unpaint a picture for you. Have you ever made your own cartoon, you know, like with a pen and a little notepad? 
or maybe with some crayons or colored pens. And by the way, how do you pronounce the word crayon? <laughs> Is it crayon or crones or crayons? I mean, you know people pronounce it different ways, right? Which way's the right way? Anyway, when I was a kid on Sunday mornings, sitting in sacrament meeting, bored out of my mind, but trying very diligently to be reverent, I would sometimes draw or color in a little notebook. And sometimes I'd make these little drawings move. Like I'd draw a picture of a ball on one page, and then on the next page I'd draw the ball a little smaller, and then on the next page a little smaller, and then a little bigger, and then a bigger, and about 10 or 20 pages or so, I'd flip the pages and I'd have this illusion of a moving picture of a ball getting smaller and then bigger and bouncing all around the page. You can picture that, right? Now sometimes, if I was extra bored or extra motivated, I would make the picture on each page a little more detailed, more complex, and I'd add more color and texture. And one time, I drew a cartoon of a monkey holding an ice cream cone, and in 10 frames, I made that monkey basically bow his head and frown with a tear dripping from its eye as the ice cream from the top of the cone fell off of the cone and melted into nothing on the ground. And I colored it all in. I added background elements like a Ferris wheel that was moving, a balloon that was floating away from a little kid in the background, the little kids crying. It was a complex image with many details. And when I showed it to my mom, she knew exactly what it was. It was a monkey dropping an ice cream cone at the Arizona State Fair, which was inspired inspired by a recent visit that I had made to the Arizona State Fair. Now, of course, my mom wasn't in my mind with me, imagining what I was imagining, but she could see enough detail in the pictures to know what I was trying to express. But what if she couldn't see it? What if she could only see fragments of each picture? Now, maybe my verbal description just now of a cartoon monkey dropping an ice cream cone at the Arizona State Fair, maybe that just painted a similar image in your mind as well. Maybe you can imagine it. Or at least maybe the words that I used influenced you to create an image similar to that in your own mind with your own imagination. Whatever your response was, I, I did just influence you, unduly or not, and your response to my influence created something in you. It's not quite the same cause and effect process of me creating impressions on the piece of paper from my crayons as I created each detailed image. You know, like if you had a cookie cutter in the design of a Christmas tree with candy cane ornaments, and I just push that cookie cutter into raw cookie dough to create an impression in the dough. I can do that process of impressing an image better when I'm doing it on paper with crayons than I can when I'm doing it with words through a podcast into your ears. But anyway, it's still making an impression. So if I picture something in my mind and I draw it, depending on my artistic skill and my ability to draw, part of that is natural ability and part of that is a learned technique and developed talents. Now, the process of me speaking words into your ears is not exactly the same thing as a cookie cutter to make an impression on cookie dough because there's some complex filtering that goes on in your mind between the sender and the receiver when the message of meaning is being created and received. Does that make sense? So let's imagine that I drew this moving picture scene in church and it's the monkey holding the ice cream cone. I gave it to my mom to show her what I'd draw. But let's also say that I gave my mom these special sunglasses. And they not only block out ultraviolet radiation, but they also block out 99.99999% of all other wavelengths of light that our eyes have evolved to perceive. And now when she looks at my picture, instead of seeing all the images and colors and details that I put on each slide, she only sees a few random dots on each page. She can't make out the monkey or the ice cream cone, 
or the fairgrounds, she just sees a few random dots on each page. And when I flip those 10 pages together, it looks to her like a little bit of fuzz or some static or confetti surrounded by a whole lot of nothing. So now, if you take off the glasses, you can see that that nothing was actually a lot of something, but when you're looking at it through those glasses, you're blind to all of that something. You just can't really see it. And you can't see how those random fuzzy static dots of confetti fit together. But that doesn't really stop us from connecting those dots and creating some kind of meaning, does it? The assertion that I'm making here is that each one of us wears a pair of these metaphorical glasses, and they're permanent. From the day that we're born to the day that we die, they never come off. They do shift and they change over time and what they filter in and what they filter out and how they tint and color the world around us. It's this filter that we have. And we honestly don't really even know that much about this filter. And I'm talking about the way that our brains act as a filter, letting in some things, blocking out others. And this filtering happens on many levels and it's determined by many different constraints. There are of course the biological constraints that evolution provided as this human brain slowly evolved from single living cells 3.7 billion years ago into what our human body is today. We only see a narrow range of light. We only hear a narrow range of sound. So obviously we're blinded to things that we have not evolved to perceive. But there are also cultural, geographical, and educational constraints on our filtering system. The human ear, for example, may equally detect sounds in any given range of frequency, but if those sounds are from the Japanese language and you've never learned the Japanese language, then the sounds that you hear, zenzen wakaru mono wa muri zenzen wakara nakereba narimasen desu yo ne? Yeah, you don't understand it at all. So where we're born, when we're born, our family culture, our social environment, our entire traditional upbringing, it imprints onto us through our early stages of childhood development. And we're each born into this world as a relatively blank slate that our culture begins imprinting onto before we have any idea what's happening. And this process forms our filter. It forms these beliefs and expectations of the world. It's a worldview. And it's like these cookie cutters forming images into our malleable brains. And these beliefs and expectations that we inherit from our external environment this is the primary reason why we're blind to so much of what we encounter that we're not expecting to see. And we all have this feature to our filtering system that has been called confirmation bias, which is much easier to see in others than it is to see in ourselves. And this happens largely unconsciously. When we see or hear something, our brain compares this new information against these cultural cookie cutter formed expectations and beliefs and then our brain tells us what this thing means or doesn't mean. If it's important or not important. Valuable, dangerous, yada, yada, yada. It becomes the mechanism of judgment that we use our confirmation bias to make sense of these fuzzy, staticky dots that would make no sense to us otherwise. We make them make sense. We create a fiction. Unconsciously. And then we go about our day believing in our created fictions and continuing to create more but we're really only connecting dots to a picture that we simply cannot possibly see, at least not completely. And from a neurological perspective, it doesn't really matter if those beliefs and expectations were imprinted on my brain from a religion with a divine authority as a claim, or if it was imprinted from my supervisor at work who can give me a raise or fire me. They're my beliefs and my expectations that have been formed by interacting with other people. And religion is one of the contexts for this interaction. It's also a product of this interaction. I mean, what came first? The religion 
or the hatred, fear, and bigotry that we don't like about religion. <laughs> I think it's the hatred, fear, and bigotry. And I think that religion is one way that people have promoted and justified their internal hatred, fear, and bigotry. I don't think the answer is to get rid of religion. I think the answer is to expose the unconscious hatred, fear, and bigotry that each one of us carries, whether it came from religion or not. That's my belief. That's my conscious bias. I'm not sure how many unconscious biases blind me to other things, but I do enjoy trying to find them and trying to bring them to light. Each new version is an updated fiction. That's how I see it. So I'm going to show you how I connect the dots that I see. But in doing so, again, I don't believe that I'm adding extra truth to these fictions. In other words, I don't think that you're blind to 99% and I'm only blind to 89%. So let me show you the 10% that you can't see. No, I, I think that's a disingenuous approach. I don't see more than you see. I only see different from what you see, in some areas at least, because my filter is based on what has been imprinted on me, having been born where I was, when I was, and having experienced all the experiences that I've had in my life, which includes eight years of graduate school at Indiana University, where I got a master's degree and most of a PhD in folklore and mythology, which is the study of traditional culture, which encouraged me to look at the ways that traditional culture imprints on the human brain and creates these expectations, beliefs, and worldviews that in turn create a sense of identity and become the filter that produces meaning for us through our lives. A filter that's constantly being fed and updated through every experience that we experience. And this filter is, I think, where you see that religion causes harm in people. Because I think what you're saying, Ken, is that religions are a form of social, traditional, cultural organization that imprint dangerous worldviews onto a person's brain, harmful worldviews. And I think you're saying that religiously imprinted worldviews are more harmful than non-religiously imprinted worldviews because religion typically asserts divine authority, whereas other organizations do not. And I want to pause here for a second to ask you, how confident are you that this statement of yours is accurate? Is it possible that you've connected dots to come to this conclusion, but that these connected dots are biased and blind to other information that could potentially tell a different story and provide a different meaning? So, once again, here's the first thing that you asked me. Most religions aren't like other organizations because they assert divine authority. Doesn't this introduce a more critical element of undue influence that amplifies the harm religion can generate? So, when I read that question, my developed filter immediately created more questions like, do most religions really assert divine authority? Is that most religions in Utah, in the United States, globally, in the 19th century, 20th century, throughout all time? How do you define religion? How can you distinguish a religion from a non-religion? What is divine authority? How is divine authority different from other kinds of authority? What does divine even mean? How can I distinguish something that is divine from something that's not divine? What is undue influence? How does undue influence differ from other kinds of influence? What is the harm that's being generated by the religion? Where in the physical world does that harm reside? How does that harm come into the physical world? What's the relationship between the harm, the harmed, the harmers, the influence, and the religion itself? And honestly, Ken, those are only a few of the questions that sprung into my mind when I read your question. The approach that I then take is to start with that question about harm 
because that seems to be the main reason for you posing the question here in the first place. The assumption, I think, behind your question is that religion causes harm. So if you want to get rid of the harm, then you need to get rid of the religion. For example, a Mormon-shaped cookie cutter will imprint a Mormon-shaped worldview onto the mind of a Mormon child that causes harm to that child and harm to anyone that that child later harms as a result of their Mormon-formed worldview. So, get rid of the Mormon-shaped cookie cutter and you get rid of all that collateral harm. Did that sum up? Is that kind of where you're coming from? I personally just don't think that it's that simple. So, let's talk about harm a little bit. What, what comes to mind when you think about religiously caused harm? Sexual abuse that occurs in a religious context and then is covered up because people don't want to make their religion look bad. That's a big one, right? Uh, xenophobic, uh, which is one of my favorite words to say, by the way, xenophobia, the fear of the foreign. Xenophobic prejudice and bigotry towards other races, ethnicities, cultures, subcultures, gender, sexual orientation. This kind of harm is rampant in many religious organizations, isn't it? Because it makes people think that it's not only okay, but it's actually in line with what God wants to think of your non-believing neighbors as less than you, or especially less worthy than you, for whatever reason that might make you think that. So these are some examples of harm. I could keep going, right? There's a lot of harm that comes from rigidly and dogmatically embracing xenophobic fictions without having the skills or ability to critically observe how these inherited beliefs create harm in ourselves and others. The harm that I've become very sensitive to in recent years, however, is the harm that reinforces unhealthy patterns of thinking onto our mind. It's like this cookie cutter of bad thinking that imprints on the brain. Unhealthy ways of interpreting information uh, and of processing information. Now there's a powerful form of therapy you may be familiar with called CBT, Cognitive Behavioral Therapy that helps people who have severely distorted realities because they're wearing these glasses that create unneeded stress and anxiety because they engage in black and white thinking or all or nothing thinking or discounting the positive or engaging solely in emotional reasoning or catastrophizing, making huge mountains out of every little molehill. And there's a lot of these cognitive distortions that are covered in CBT. And I think my religious imprinting has put far more cognitive distortions in my mind than I'm even remotely aware of. But I keep looking for these cognitive distortions and I keep finding more and more of them. But do you know what non-religious, non-divine authority organization I think has imprinted an even more harmful effect on my unconscious filtering system than anything that I ever experienced from the Mormon church? I think the US educational system I remember when I was in sixth grade, a new kid moved into the school. His name was Franco. His uncle played in the NFL for the Dallas Cowboys. And Franco thought that he was a pretty cool, tough guy. At least that's what my filter told me about Franco at the time. He, he stole my best friend's girlfriend, you know, like in sixth grade. <laughs> it's kind of funny, but, you know, it's a thing. I had a chip on my shoulder. I didn't like Franco. And... You know, really, I can look back on it now and see that I didn't like Franco because I actually felt threatened by him. And one day, I was really thrilled to see him out on the playground, bawling his eyes out during recess, like a, like a spoiled little crybaby. Oh, who's the tough guy now, little crybaby? And why was he crying? Because he got a 19 out of 20 on that day's spelling quiz. So he missed one word. Big deal, right? But it was a big deal. And... 
How many times did something like this happen? And how many times has something like this happened before it really imprints deeply on the self-worth of a kid? Similar things happened to me too, of course, in slightly different ways. That feeling of my own self-worth being tied to my ability to remember and regurgitate what was put in front of me. Being told that I'm a failure if I can't memorize things very well, regardless of how good I might be in other areas that the school system doesn't necessarily care about all that much, like creative problem solving or thinking outside the box. Even in graduate school, it was more about students showing off to their professors and their fellow students by how much they could quote Kierkegaard or Nietzsche or whatever other authority figure was out there, divine or otherwise, who could create a kind of cultural currency for them. Now, I think that our educational system actually disempowers both students and teachers in a number of ways. The biggest way, I think, is placing conditions upon worthiness that reinforce a worldview that's based on lack and limitation and a fear of failure in areas that aren't really failures, except that we say that they are. And so we grow up being conditioned to think and expect that they are, and so that's what we see in the world. I think that's a huge harm that's caused that we don't really talk about that much. I think our education system would be better off if it was designed to encourage the unique skills of each student rather than expecting all students to fit a certain mold. And I wish the things that they taught in school were a little more practical to everyday life, like teaching mental health coping skills, teaching the value of cooperation and creativity, teaching how to identify and manage cognitive distortions. I think the education system would be improved if there were better pay for our teachers and there were smaller teacher to student ratios and an overall endorsement from our society that says education really is the most valuable thing to us and empowering our children nothing's more important i think that the harm done as a result of our current education system is just as problematic if not more so than the harm that's caused by religion i also think it's more insidious because it flies a little more under the radar i think than religion does I also think that this idea of divine authority having undue influence on harm is present even in non-religious, secular organizations. What you call divine in a religious context, you might call respect or glorification or hero worship in a secular context. For example, I worked for a medical device company for 13 years that was founded by a guy who named the company after himself, and that guy became the divine authority of that company. The culture within that company, for many, many years, developed around brown-nosing the boss, doing things his way, hoping to be the guy in line that could light a cigarette whenever it needed to be lighted. He wasn't too fond of government regulations telling him how to run his manufacturing quality control system. And people followed that attitude for years. And that eventually led to a warning letter from the FDA and some sanctions that were put on the company that put them in a hole that took them several years to dig out of. Now, I'm not saying that there was great harm done in any of this, but I am saying that a person who's been trained by the education system to turn off their thinking brains, to simply defer to authority, and just don't make waves, well, they'll follow authority, whether it's divine or not. And if that authority is encouraging them to do things that harm others and people just go along with it, well, I don't know. I think that's just kind of the world that we live in, isn't it? Whether the authority is divine or not. And, and how is that going to change? I don't think that blaming this all on religion is going to do it. As for your question about elevation emotion 
and separating the baby from the bathwater. I think this might be more along the lines of where I focus on harm because I think this is where you're focusing on the way that an organization can imprint worldview beliefs and expectations onto your mind. To me, sifting out the baby from the bathwater doesn't mean figuring out which ideas that form my worldview are religious and which ones are not. It's about which ideas are harmful, regardless of whether they were part of a religious tradition or not. And a big part of this baby with the bathwater discussion for me centers around my own relationship with my unconscious mind. There are so many things about me that I don't really know. There are experiences that I've had in my life that I no longer remember consciously, but unconsciously, all of my memories are alive and well. They're just in my long-term memory storage instead of in my short-term memory recall, wherever that is in my body. And the realm of my unconscious mind is where most of my worldview exists. And most of it, I'm unaware of. Most of my worldview, the beliefs and expectations that I have about the world, are unconscious programs running in the background of my current operating system. I could spend the rest of my life exploring and raising awareness into the unconscious programs that make me tick, and I still would only be scratching the surface. So I see elevation emotion as a thing that happens inside of my body when things in the outside world line up in a way that validates the unconscious thought programs of my inside world that form my worldview. You know, the Holy Ghost confirms truth, right? So an example of this, I remember when I went through the temple the first time, before my mission, and then a few times while I was in the missionary training center. There was a scene in the temple movie at the time where Lucifer is cast out by Peter, James, and John. I have a word to say concerning these people. If they do not walk up to every covenant they make at these altars in this temple this day, they will be in my power. Satan, we command you to depart. By what authority? In the name of Jesus Christ, our Master. They raise their arms to the square and say, by the power and authority of Jesus Christ, I command you to depart. And Lucifer does, because for some reason, that is his kryptonite. And I always felt the Holy Ghost so strongly in that moment. It was like one of my favorite moments of the movie because it made me feel like I had power over evil, that I was able to use that same kryptonite. Because unconsciously, I had been fed loads and loads of stories and developed all of these fears about the devil tempting me, about the devil having power over me, having power to read my thoughts, to influence my thoughts, this unseen, mellifluous entity with supernatural powers that I could only combat if I was worthy enough to have Jesus as my kryptonite. And seeing this acted out on screen in the Temple movie activated that elevation emotion that I was taught to connect the dots of meaning by calling it the Holy Ghost. And it felt good to feel good. It felt good to feel like I had some power over the devil after all. The mirror neurons in my brain were creating elevation feelings of empathy and personal empowerment because the Mormon narrative that I'd been programmed with was being validated by the Mormon Temple movie that I was watching. <laughs> Interesting how that works, right? So that's what I think about elevation emotion and babies and bathwater. Every experience imprints on my mind and contributes to my overall worldview, whether it's from religious sources or not. And it's my own relationship to my mind, especially the unconscious meaning-making parts of my mind that I'm most interested in exploring. And finally, can we recreate the sensation of eating a perfectly seared filet without actually eating a filet? 
So Ken, I think what you're asking here is, can we have the benefits of organized religion without having organized religion? And again, I say to this question, yes and no, what I think, I don't know. Um, what benefits are we talking about exactly? Maybe the benefits of community based upon shared values? I guess I hope that we can have that without organized religion, but my biggest question is, how do we create those shared values that community members will agree to and hold, dare I say, sacred? And who decides what those values are? How do you guarantee that everybody's gonna get on board? Yuval Harari in the book Sapiens did a great job of showing how religious fictions can bind communities together through these shared beliefs and shared values. So how do you do that without religion? Can you do that without religion? And if you do do that, how do you avoid it turning into a religion? And honestly, would there really be anything wrong with it if it did turn into a religion? What if it were a religion based upon values of equality, compassion, loving your neighbor as yourself, living the golden rule, having an awe and reverence for the forces of nature that we're all expressions of, a desire to uplift, support, and encourage others, to create a true heaven on earth. You know, the types of values that most religions claim to have, but human nature often twists into hypocrisy because, because yeah, Jesus said love everyone, but, you know, not those people. <laughs> But I don't think that religion itself is the big bad problem here, Ken. I think it's one of many social organizations where traditional stories and beliefs are passed from person to person, from generation to generation. And some of those stories and beliefs are harmful and some of them are not. But I don't think religion itself is responsible for the harmful parts. I think fear is. And I think that ignorance is. And I think there's a lot of self-ignorance. We don't really know our unconscious selves and we're afraid of so many things. We deceive ourselves a lot and one of the ways that we do this is by projecting our fears onto other people. And we haven't been taught that we're doing that. We haven't been taught how to change the habits. We haven't been taught how to think better and to process information better. And all of this keeps us trapped into loops of fear and ignorance. That's my opinion. And I view my experience of leaving the church as a microcosm of Maya. You know, Maya is the world of illusion. I was taught things that I was told they were true, and then later I found that they weren't true. And there was, and still is, a social cost in changing my beliefs and leaving the church because I couldn't stand the toxicity that arose in me when the church was no longer aligning with my changing values and my changing worldview. Leaving the church made it easy for me to see all of that, and initially I considered that religion was the problem. But then I started to see that there were similar problems in organizations that weren't religious. And I recognized that the things that I call problems are really the things that don't align with my current beliefs, values, and expectations of the world, whether that's a religious thing or not. And when I change and update my beliefs and expectations of the world to match reality as it is, as much as I possibly can, given the connect the confetti and static fuzz dots nature of my own worldview, when I know that there's a bigger picture that I just can't see and I accept that I'm never gonna figure it all out and I really just gotta focus on my own internal temperature. Like, how am I in any moment? Am I angry all the time? Am I happy? Am I calm? Am I compassionate? Am I kind? Am I considerate? Am I cynical? Am I skeptical? Am I insulting? Am I sarcastic? I'm all of these things at different times. <laughs> 
and sometimes it's better to be those than uh, others and it takes work to figure out uh, how should I show up in any given situation that to me is so much more uh, worth my time than the Don Quixote-esque tilting at windmills trying to get rid of religion so that's the way that I try to approach inner peace Ken and uh, these things I say to you through this essay in the name of a religion that's not a religion and now I'm just making up words because why not they've all been they've all been made up before I made them up anyway and I'm just regurgitating them how's that so thanks Ken for asking the question and uh, if any others have <laughs> dared to ask any questions bring it I like it thank you and thanks for listening to Infants All Clouds down the weapons that you use against yourself you don't need them anymore lay down the weapons that you use against the world we don't need another war put down the weapons that you use against yourself you hi this is hillary matthew ryan carol dashley and i like to play bingo online while listening to infants on thrones you can comment on this episode on the website infantsonthrones.com and if you really like what you hear Give the quorum a five-star rating and write a short review on iTunes. I did. I did. I did. Anyone for the closing prayer? My worst crime is an inside job. Dark thoughts taking over like an inside mob. I tune him to the scene between the eyes and take a breath. Thank you for listening to Infants on Front. I sit still and watch the thoughts float past me. Never mind the future, never mind what the past be. I like to jump and let the universe catch me. Three, four, watch the beauty blow past me. I keep my pockets like destination in sight. Keep my actions elevated to compassionate heights. I'm walking past the fight, laying down on such a night. Choosing love when I pick up this mic.